0: Return to God's Word this morning. We are looking again at First Thessalonians, and we arrive uh, at the second half of Chapter Five. The last, um, the last two weeks that we've been together, we've been looking at the issue of Christ's return. Paul was answering a couple of questions. First, about what's the fate or the future of believers who die before Christ's return. And in the first week and then last week, uh, where Paul talked about how the proper way for us to prepare for Christ's return is not by trying to figure out the date or the time when he's going to return, but, but rather to live a life that is watchful, that is sober minded, that is armed with faith, love, and hope and that's confident in salvation thanks to God's sovereign intent and for Christ's blood on our behalf. That's where we've been. Today we are entering the last section of this letter. It's a long list of brief instructions that Paul gives to the Thessalonians as he closes out this letter. And I think as a brief note, um, as a brief note uh, before we begin, I think today's text reminds us of the blessing of preaching straight through a book of scripture. These words this morning are are so timely for us, but we're not hearing it because I've chosen it as if I have something or an agenda to say to you, but because in God's providence we've come to this text this morning. And I think these verses will speak to us individually as well as a church. Uh, So would you follow with me as we read 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 12 through 18? But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Father, how I thank you for your word. How I thank you for these words that you've given us. How I thank you for... Setting them before our hearts this morning. May we be encouraged. May you work joy and thanksgiving in our hearts through this text this morning for the glory of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. So I was reflecting back on the year 2002. I was a freshman in college. I was trying to make the decision of what I should major in in college. Obviously, trying to choose a major that would set myself up for future success. And so I made the obvious choice to major in classical studies with an emphasis on Latin. My dorm room proudly uh, hung a poster that showed uh, a man with a cardboard sign which read, We'll translate your Latin for food. And that was given to me by a professor who uh, reminded me of the job possibilities of a Latin major. I may not be translating a whole lot of Latin these days, but my background did spark my interest when a couple of weeks ago, some of you may have seen this as well, uh, it was noted that archaeologists in Italy discovered a previously unknown and almost perfectly preserved mosaic. That was the large section of a floor of a villa. Founded under a vineyard near Verona in northern Italy. It's a stunning piece of artwork. Some of you may know about mosaics as well. You know that uh, a mosaic is made up of tiny little stones or gems that are placed together to form a larger picture or pattern. So that when put together, even though each individual stone is beautiful in itself, it creates a picture of even greater beauty. And I think a mosaic is a perfect analogy for our text this morning because in this text, Paul is giving us a portrait of a godly church. And as a part of this picture or this portrait of a godly church, he, he, he lists in these seven verses at least 12 different individual characteristics that would be true of a church. And in some sense, every one of these characteristics could, could take a sermon in themselves. But rather, I, what I hope we can do is look briefly at each of them and then see the picture of the church of which all of these things might be true. Because each of them brings uh, a portrait of a godly church. As we work through this portrait, I, I think you'll see that as Paul describes the church, he does so in three categories. He first describes a godly church's response to its leaders. Then he describes a godly church's ministry to one another. And he ends by describing a godly church's attitude and life. So let's look at each of those briefly, and we'll start by looking at a godly church's response to its leaders in verses 12 and 13. And what I hope you notice right away in these verses is that there's one word that really grounds so much of Paul's comments in this whole section. It grounds his whole theology of the church, if you will. Because in these first couple of verses twice, Paul addresses his comments to the Thessalonians as brothers. This is the universal gender, brothers and sisters. And these verses, Paul is rooting all of his comments in this truth that in Christ we are united as brothers and sisters. We have mutual fellowship in the gospel family because we are united together in Christ. And all the individual comments that are going to follow flow from that central truth. So Paul begins by describing the elders in the church and the nature of their calling. See this in verses 12 and 13. Church leaders or, or elders are given their task. They are to labor among you. They are over you in the Lord. And they are to admonish you, Paul says to the Thessalonians. You know, this description, I think, perfectly balances both the authority of church leaders, but also the servanthood that is to characterize their task. And you see this because on the one hand, church leaders are to follow Christ in serving one another by sacrificial labor for the good of the congregation. You see this when Paul says that those, uh, the church leaders are those who labor among you. And the word for labor there isn't just a word for work, it's, it's a word that describes pouring forth effort that leads to exhaustion, to put forth toil that leads to weariness. There's a, there's a service. And you think of Christ, right? How often from morning till night, Christ served those who are around them. And that's the picture that we have here of church leaders laboring among their congregation sacrificially and for their good but elders are also given spiritual authority in the church. And I think um, sometimes we, we live in, in a day and an age where American individualism can lead us to just level spiritually, spiritual authority completely so that if I or my interpretation of Scripture disagrees with a decision from the elders, I'm free to ignore them or maybe just feel inappropriately attacked by them or just leave. Unfortunately, we see that in the world around us. And yet God knew that our hearts are often deceitful. God knew that we can easily justify our sin and that our logic is at times misguided or waylaid by prior commitments. And so thankfully, God invested in church leaders spiritual authority. Paul says they are over us in the Lord. And he goes a step further and says that God has given our elders the task. He has called them to the duty of admonishing us when we need it. Then Paul, having described the nature of the task of the leaders, then calls on the congregation. He calls on the congregation to respond to these spiritual leaders that God has placed over them by respecting them, by esteeming them very highly in love because of their work. And I think Paul's words here call us as God's people to respect church leaders in our attitude to them, as well as to respond to them with affection and gratitude and love. Thanks for their labor on our behalf as God's people. And then describing the congregation's response directly to leaders, Paul adds a further response. And you see this at the end of verse 13. Paul adds this note for the whole church body when he says, be at peace among yourselves. This is to describe the relationship between leaders or elders and the congregation as well as the congregation to one another. And Paul knew, of course, Paul knew that the church would be filled with disagreements. He knew that this would be the case. And so he sounds this note of pursuing peace again and again in his letters. Maybe you think of Romans chapter 14 after saying that differences will exist in the church over how to apply biblical truth, Paul says, do not judge one another, but instead let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Paul describes in Ephesians 4 the reason for this. He says, there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of us all. So let us bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And while it's certainly true that there have come moments in church history and there will come moments again, where because of heresy or false doctrine, we will need to divide. This text reminds us that our default, our call is to pursue peace despite differences with our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, as I read these verses and I reflect on, on our own church, I am so thankful through my years here as a member, as, as a youth pastor, now as in my role here for the godly pastors and elders that God has given our church who labor on behalf of our congregation We've been given teaching elders who work significant hours studying and teaching and caring for our church, ruling elders who work demanding jobs in the day and then put more hours into prayer, biblical and practical decisions and discussions and caring for the flock. And and I admire these men. I honor them. I have learned from them and I thank God for them. And I can also say, having been a youth pastor here and, and now in this role, that you as a congregation have been such a blessing to me. My wife and I have felt the love of this congregation for our family, and I thank you for the way you have lived out these verses so well. Of course, individually, none of us always do this well, do we? I was reflecting on my own heart and how quick I am to judge and criticize even godly leaders I respect when I disagree with a decision that they make. And of course, no leader is perfect. Every pastor and every elder will let you down at some point, guaranteed, if we serve or if we are with them for long enough. And not only that, but we want every believer to be a Berean who tests everything that A church leader says and decides against Scripture. And I'm thankful for so many in this congregation who do that well. But at the same time, because of our hearts, we need this reminder that God has invested our leaders with a position of spiritual authority and he has called them to admonish us. And we must be on the watch for arrogance or stubbornness in our hearts that would lead us to resist that or be quick to judge Longtime PCA pastor Rick Phillips talks about how discouraging it is to see how there can be godly men that the congregation respects who pour hours of prayer into making a, a biblically based decision. And people in the congregation can so quickly just throw that decision out because they disagree with it. And and I see that tendency in my heart. I think we all do. And so I would all call us to cultivate a godly humility toward those in spiritual authority over us. And then there's this call to pursue peace. Certainly we need to comment on that briefly as well because this is particularly helpful for us right now. I think many of you have experienced in, in recent months that one of the biggest challenges of recent days is the, the fact that of the relational strain that comes from realizing that people you love and you are used to agreeing with suddenly have very different opinions on COVID or masks or racial issues. These things that that are at work around us. I was talking to a friend this week who talked about having close family members who believe that wearing a mask perpetuates fear and government oppression. And close family members who believe that not wearing a mask violates the sixth commandment and makes us complicit in murder. We all know this, right? We've talked to our friends and our family with these varying positions and it it puts strain on, on relationships. And maybe in the end, one side will be more right than the other, but both of these are issues of conscience and application of Scripture, not of heresy or false doctrine. And so while each person should be convicted before the Lord and act according to their conscience, neither position should break fellowship or lead to a distrust or division amongst God's people. See, the church right now faces a time of threat or a time of opportunity. American freedom and individualism has given us a a situation where we can typically find a church where the leaders agree with us and do things the way we want to do them. And so we can follow that policy today and end up with churches a year from now that are largely aligned based on whether we wore masks or not. Or we have an opportunity right now to give the watching world a definitive and tangible picture of our unity in Christ because of which we actively seek for relationship, peace, and mutual affection with believers who may disagree with us on small things now because our worship together as the body of Christ is of primary importance. So may we seek peace together. Well, having discussed the church's response to its leaders, Paul moves on in verses 14 to 15 to discuss the church's ministry to one another. I urge you to look at those verses. And Paul begins, probably again, his most significant comment is one we might skip right over because it's those first few words in verse 14. We urge you, brothers. When Paul talks about ministering to the congregation, he doesn't start by saying, well, here's how your pastors should minister to you. In a day when, no matter what the problem, there's a professional for that, I was noticing in a Psychology Today article this week that you can, even in some areas, hire professional mourners to help you mourn at your funeral. There's a professional for everything, but that's not the model for the church. The model for the church is not go to the professional for everything you need. The model for the church is that God calls his people to daily minister to one another. The description of how we love one another and minister to one another is addressed to the brothers, that our whole congregation would love one another. And it's so encouraging, isn't it, to meet a fellow brother or sister in Christ who, not because of any leadership role in they have the church, but just because they are a brother or sister in Christ, pursue friendship with you and seek to minister to you, to seek to build you up in Christ. And that's Paul's pattern here for the church. Each one of us ministering to one another because of our unity in Christ. Specifically, you see that Paul calls believers to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, and to repay no one evil for evil, but to seek to do good to one another. And when Paul talks about the idol here, if we look at each of these just briefly, the word used that's translated idol actually means someone who is unruly or a soldier who's out of step with the way he ought to be living. A lot of translations use the word idol because Paul specifically refers to the idol as unruly using this word in 2 Thessalonians, but but really the word is a bit broader than that. And Paul, I think, is talking about those who disrupt the peace or purity of the church by unruliness. Paul calls believers to admonish them. And this, of course, is not a free invitation to criticize anyone you think might not be doing the right thing, but it's to personally and humbly warn a fellow believer who is clearly walking in sin or idleness or disruption. How about the faint-hearted the faint hearted is the person who is easily discouraged or anxious because of the weight of burdens in their lives. And Paul says we're to encourage or to strengthen by upbuilding or strengthen by giving support. This image, I think, immediately brings to mind when Saul's son Jonathan strengthened David's heart. You remember when David was being pursued by Saul, Saul was trying to kill him, and David was discouraged and in hiding. And it says that Jonathan went out and encouraged and strengthened his heart in the Lord. Often this kind of encouragement will mean drawing near to someone to listen and share their burdens, to pray for them, to to offer counsel and encouragement, to remind them of the truths and the promises of God's word in the face of discouragement. But distinct from the faint-hearted are the weak. And the weak could mean either spiritually weak or those who struggle to resist sin and need help and accountability, or it could mean the physically weak or the powerless or those in need. I don't, I don't see any textual re- reason to decide on one or the other. I think both apply here. And to the one, we are called to help those who are struggling with sin by holding them accountable and encouraging them in righteousness, and we're to help those who are weak and in need physically. And with each category, you'll notice that Paul finishes by warning that we must be patient with all because God's people in each of these categories typically need ongoing help. Ministry is not a situation where we just give a simple solution and move on. It's one where we draw near with persevering love for one another. And so the reality is this encouragement to be patient to all is not just something that applies to a few people in a particular category. It's true for all of us as we minister to one another, that we would be patient, that we would bear with one another and continue building them up for the sake of Christ. And then, of course, Paul ends with the comment, the critical comment, that we should repay no one evil for evil, but to do good to one another. Because just in case we forget, the church is made up of sinners. And I think a lot of times we can steel ourselves to expect those who are not Christians to hurt us. But when we are hurt by a believer, when the small slights and and hurts or maybe even a large slight or hurt comes from a fellow believer, we bristle and we struggle with this. And so Paul concludes, see that no one repays evil for evil, but adopt this policy. Intentionally and actively seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That's the central attitude that drives this willingness and ability to minister to one another. Our intention to do good to one another in Christ. So here we have this picture of brothers and sisters in Christ ministering to one another, intentionally seeking to do good to one another, admonishing the idle, strengthening the faint hearted, helping the weak, being patient. With all. Well, finally, then Paul moves on to describes the church's attitude in life in verses sixteen to eighteen. Look at these final verses with me, if you would. And Paul urges each believer in the church to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. And I think you, it's easy to note here, right, that all three of these things is to be a regular attitude: joy, prayer. And giving thanks are to define us always, continually, in all circumstances. These are commands for all of life. And it's, it's not surprising, then, that believers are called to these attitudes all throughout Scripture. We see this continually. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say, rejoice. Luke 18, 1, as Jesus begins one of his parables, says that Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. Colossians 3, 15 to 17. In three verses, Paul calls on the Colossians three times to be thankful, concluding, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Joy, prayer, thanks, all throughout Scripture, attitudes to define us. But I think if we're honest, we would all recognize the beauty of a life that is continually marked by joy, prayer, and thanksgiving, but we all struggle to know how exactly we could do that. And we start uh, by wondering how can I continually be in prayer given everything else I do in life? I mean, Despite stories of people like President James Garfield, you may be aware of the fact that he was ambidextrous and could write two letters in two different languages at the same time. Now that's outrageous. But despite that, I don't even think that I can pray and prepare a sermon in the same time or pray and talk with my wife at the same time. How is that possible? And, and when it comes to joy, I, I often struggle to feel joyful in the midst of sorrow. These, these are good goals, but it just seems like we fall flat trying to to live them out. So how do these things apply? Well, Maybe a few comments to help us. Begin with prayer, to pray continually. To pray continually does not mean to be actively invested in the activity of prayer at every minute, but rather to live all of life, all areas of life before the presence of God and in conversation with him. Paul Miller is the author of A Praying Life, and he talks about the habit of breath prayers, which are just one-line prayers that he will pray throughout the day and whatever's going on around him. Lord, help me. Lord, give me mercy. Lord, this is hard. Be with me. So that he is not necessarily praying it every second, but all that happens throughout the day is met in conversation with God, Before his presence, I think perhaps another way to say it would be to pray continually is to commit that no area of life would be lived without prayer. How about rejoicing and giving thanks for all things? Well, this does not mean that we just don't have sufficient faith if we're not always happy and cheerful. Jesus and Paul themselves show times of grief and suffering and conflict. So instead, we should take these verses to mean that any grief or difficulty is always undergirded by and overshadowed by the promises of God and the hope that is guaranteed for us in Christ. The promises of God and the hope in Christ with shatter the ultimate power of grief and loss, making them impermanent in the face of ultimate joy and victory in Christ. We also have to remember that we don't achieve joy and thanksgiving by trying to focus on being happy and thankful. That is like the person who's constantly asking if they're having fun at the party yet. That doesn't work. Rather, we are called to focus on Christ and what he has done for us, to believe that he is trustworthy in all circumstances. It's that decision to focus on Christ and trust him that yields joy and thanks. After all, consider some of the promises God has made to us. Romans eight thirty two if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God sacrificed his son for us, that is a guarantee that he is at work for our good. Romans 5, 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been accepted into God's presence and guaranteed his love and fellowship as the, with, the, with the God of all creation, with the glorious one. We have given and given that in Christ. Or how about 2 Corinthians 1, 20, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ, God's promises of his presence, his return to bring us with him, to set all things right and restore peace according to his will. These are true for us and guaranteed for us in Christ. Or how about where Paul says, these light and momentary afflictions are working for us an eternal weight of glory. It's the decision to trust and focus on these promises in Christ that is our doorway to joy And thanksgiving in all circumstances. Many of you I know know of Johnny Erickson Tata, who was paralyzed as a teenager in a swimming accident. And Johnny talks about a decisive moment in her life that led her to joy. Prior to her swimming accident, Johnny loved horseback riding, and she had her own horse. And after her accident, she held on to that horse. And she held on to the horse as a a way to focus on, in some ways, her grief and her loss. She could not give up that horse, which was the symbol of what she had lost. But finally, with the urging of her friend and her mentor, she made the decision to sell the horse. And instead, embrace her wheelchair as the gift that God had given her. To fulfill his will and promises for her. What a decision. Sell your horse and embrace your wheelchair as the gift God has given her. And and she says that decision opened the door to joy and thanksgiving for how God was at work in her and to the ministry that she would have for decades. Of course, um, I would have to also admit to you that on Wednesday of this week, I was studying these verses and I was preparing some of these thoughts. And I thought this so encouraging what great truths to preach 30 minutes later i was driving home just burdened by all of the turmoil around us and i'm pretty sure joy and thanksgiving was the furthest thing from my heart but as i was driving home god brought to mind these things and the spirit convicted me do i think these are good preaching points or do i believe that they are true And in that moment, the Lord so graciously gave me joy and thanks as I meditated on these as truths for my heart, secured for me by Christ. Things that enabled me to recognize these circumstances as precisely what he's using now to refine all of us and turn our gaze on him and remind us that our true hope and true identity is in him. And so I pray that God would make these truths our door to joy and thanksgiving this morning. Well, as we end, I wonder if we could step back from the individual gems, right? This is a mosaic. We've talked about all these individual stones that are part of this pattern, but could we consider the mosaic as a whole? Could we consider this passage in the picture it gives us of a godly community? Do you see how they all work together? All of these stones work together to give us this picture, Because it's hearts filled with joy and thanksgiving focused on Christ in prayer that are also typically the humble hearts that enable us to love one another and to be patient with one another, to encourage one another, to help one another, to labor on one another's behalf, to submit to one another. Godly leaders who pour themselves out for the sake of the congregation set a pattern for all of us to pour ourselves out for one another. And a community that is actively pursuing peace preserves and encourages joy and thanksgiving. All of these things weave together in one picture of a godly community living out the fruits of the spirit after the pattern of Jesus Christ. And so I would encourage each of us this morning that perhaps individually we might choose one or two of these precious gems to meditate on for our lives this week. But also that we would hold up this portrait as a whole, as the goal for our lives, but also for our congregation as a church. And of course we know all of this is only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. No one of us is going to get up in our own strength and do this. But as we as a church grow in the fruits of the Spirit, as we more and more taste the joy of Christ together, as we grow into maturity in Christ together, as we give testimony to the world of the power of God's spirit together, as we anticipate the future we have in heaven, as we worship in perfection together. This is where we will grow as a congregation that glorifies him. And so may this portrait more and more define us individually and as a church. Thanks be to God. Father, I thank you for these words that you've given us. I thank you for this passage that you have brought to our hearts this morning. I pray, pray that you would work these things by your spirit. We need your Holy Spirit at work in us, Father. Would you work this in us individually and as a church for the glory of your name. We pray this through Christ. Amen.